Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Go ahead and find your seats. We like that you like each other. Just like each other quietly. We can do this trick. Remember this from elementary school? Remember that? We were being we were being controlled socially already at a young age. Well, welcome City Beautiful. My name is John David Harris. I have there. Oh boy. Um, I have three names. I use all of them because I'm from the South, and that's what we do. Uh, Ryan is on vacation. He is in Scotland at the moment, hunting for the Loch Ness Monster and N.T. Wright. All at the same time, to the two of you that got that reference, I appreciate it. Um, Way back, let's just get right into it. Way back after Easter, we began a series called Listening to the Voice of God. And the idea of the series, we started off with the idea that God did not just speak once. It's not just a promise that he's going to speak again, but he is constantly speaking. And it's up to us to attunate ourselves to hearing the voice of God. Ryan would say that we would posture ourselves or find a posture in which we can hear God speak. Uh, We also moved into talking about the different ways that God speaks. Does anybody remember some of the ways that we can hear God speak? Nature, scripture, tradition, worship, community, a bunch of things. They were great, I suggest. If you've forgotten them, go back and listen to them because they were really great. Um, But now we've moved into a new series altogether. A new series that spawns off of that latter series. about Now that we can listen to the voice of God, we are talking about responding to the invitation of God. Ryan has been leading us through a bunch of internal and external effects. Because when we encounter the divine, we are changed. So a bunch of things that change the way that we think, the way that we interact with people. He's talked about how our view of faithfulness changes. He's talked about how our ideas of worship and justice have changed. Last week, Stacy talked about how we can renew our minds when we hear the voice of God. How we need to change even the way that we think. The reason I want to talk about this recap is because this reminded me of a moment that happened in Scripture when Israel had also started hearing from the voice of God again. You see in the Old Testament, there, um, if in the Hebrew texts, there's these texts called the Nevi'im, and that is the prophets, and you have the early prophets, things like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, all that stuff, and then you have the latter prophets, like Daniel, Isaiah, and everything. Well, there's this moment in between where there's these like historical books, and they get sent into exile and all that fun stuff. Well, that after they start coming back, they started to attunate themselves to hearing the voice of God again. And God shows up and starts speaking. And he starts speaking so much that we have this entire second section of prophetic books in the Bible. In the English Bible, we separate them into major and minor prophets. And the only difference is how long they are. I remember when I found that out, I was really bummed. Because I thought there was some like, special power that the major prophets had. But just as on how long they are. But right in the middle of these new prophetic books, we get this really strange story. 
It's this weird tale that's kind of this like unexpected parable. It's kind of this satirical masterwork, if you will, plopped right into the middle of this new set of speakings. This story is my favorite text of the Old Testament. And it serves, I think, for us today and for them at the time as almost a cautionary tale when it comes to both hearing the voice of God and responding to the voice of God. So before we dive in, let's pray real fast. Father, I thank you that you are a God that continually speaks to us. May we continually open our ears to hear your voice. And Father, this morning... As we learn about the book of Jonah, may we learn the ways that you speak to us and the ways that we should respond and the ways that we should steer clear of responding. Father, may the words that come out of my mouth go through the Holy Spirit and speak to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Real quick poll, how many people grew up in Sunday school, children's church, that kind of thing? So you're fairly familiar with like some of these stories. How many of you did not grow up in Sunday school? How many of you are kind of like in the middle? You're like, I didn't, but when you say David and Goliath, I know what you're talking about. Cool, cool, good, just want to take a poll. I have this thing with Bible stories that we teach kids. I think it's really strange, some of the stories that we pick, and I think it all comes down to animals. I think that we're thinking of what can we paint on the nursery wall that won't freak kids out. So like the first one that comes to mind is like Noah, right? We skip over the fact that a flood destroys all of humanity and we just paint this painting of like Noah cruising around on a boat with some giraffes hanging out the back. Like that's cool. Or even like the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Like that's terrifying. But you know, there's a picture of Daniel with like some pretty like like lions that he's petting and like that's cute so we tell that story to kids we also tell i really think that we would not tell the story of creation and adam and eve if adam was not commanded to name the animals or if there was a snake involved we just would skip over it we're like you know what this is going to get too weird later on when you go to science class we're just going to skip it but no there's animals so dang it we're going to talk about it this leads us to jonah another story with an animal in it what animal is in jonah a fish, a whale, something. It's an aquatic thing. An aquatic sea creature, much like the Loch Ness Monster. Um, but we think, I think we have a lot of misconceptions about Jonah. A lot of oversimplification that comes because we feel so familiar with the text already. Because it's short and it's simple and we teach it to kids. But I actually think that Jonah is doing something that is very subversive. That is very interesting if we actually dig into the text. There's only four chapters, but actually, much to Daniel's surprise, I want to read them all with you. And so we're going to go through it. So in the words of the great Samuel L. Jackson, hold on to your butts. Here we go. Jonah chapter (laughs) 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Say Tarshish. Thank you. From the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Thank you. Away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship threatened to break up. 
Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. That's hard to say. They cast lots. And, they, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. I like that word. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they cannot. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord. Have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That is how you start a story, people. We are one chapter in, and we go from introducing you to Jonah to him being swallowed in the fish, and you thought the opening of Tarzan was good. The only thing that this is missing is Phil Collins. So, it seems like a simple narrative. It seems like a crazy simple narrative. Some of you are just getting the Phil Collins reference, and I'll let that, <laughs> let that last. Um, but the author is hinting at something much deeper here. First of all, the author is showing us right off the bat that this is not a prophetic book, even though it's in the prophetic books. All prophetic books, first of all, have... A few characteristics. First of all, they're usually set in a particular time and place. We know that Jonah existed because he's listed in 2 Kings, but it's like, oh yeah, there's this guy Jonah. But compare that to like in Isaiah, when in his famous prophetic words he said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. That is a very specific moment because when God is speaking to you, you want context. You want what's going on around us. How is this applying to my life? How did this apply to them then? We get no such context in the book of Jonah. We also, surprise, surprise, all prophetic books have prophecy. And in Jonah, guess what we don't get? Prophecy. We maybe get a little but that's stretching it, and we'll talk about that later. The last thing, it is highly, highly, highly unlikely that the book of Jonah was written by Jonah. So already the author of this story is showing us that Jonah, this book in the prophets, is not a book of the prophets. This is not the typical Nevi'im that they were used to hearing about. Instead, we get a tale of a strange prophet in three cities. 
Whenever you see things in the Bible repeated, especially three times, the author's trying to call this out to us. So the three cities we get are Joppa, Nineveh, and Tarshish. My favorite. So Joppa is placed around like modern day Tel Aviv. So it's on the coast of Israel. And this is Jonah's place of comfort. So Jonah was either living here or near here because it says he went down to Joppa, so he's close. But this is his place of comfort. This is his place, this is his home base. Everything's good here. Everybody knows who he is. Life's all happy. And God calls him to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is near modern day Mosul in Iraq. Nineveh was one of the capital cities of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire at that time were very, very unfriendly to Israel. Israel had in fact actually been attacked and captured by the Assyrians a few times. And so there's this bad blood there. So when God is asking Jonah to travel to Nineveh, he's talking about traveling to a, from your place of comfort to a place of hardship. And then we get the third city. The third city that he lists three times that we know it's important. And that is the city of Tarshish. Now Tarshish, we don't exactly know precisely where it is, but it's probably in the southern part of Spain. And Tarshish was a paradise. This was like the Hawaii of the Mediterranean. There's actually some scholars that think that the story of Atlantis was based off of Tarshish. So we're talking like lavish paradise. So you have comfort right here. You have hardship over here in Nineveh. And then you have paradise. Jonah hears from God, this prophet, go to hardship and he goes to paradise. Not only does he go to paradise, but because of where it is in the Mediterranean, it would have taken a person about a year on a boat trip to get to Tarshish. I got to travel all up around, around Italy, and because of the storm seasons, you'd have to like port every once in a while. So we're also getting a clue that Jonah is not just a prophet from the Lord, but he is a prophet of well means from the Lord because Jonah paid for the boat to go to Tarshish. So we have a prophet of well means in his place of comfort. God is telling him to go to hardship and instead he goes on this lavish year-long vacation. Fun. This is when we start to encounter our first theme in the book. And that is familiarity is not the same as intimacy. You can be familiar with people. You can be familiar with places. You can be familiar with God. But that does not equate intimacy. We, get, we dive into that more in the second paragraph when we start to see the storm. God has now sent a storm and Jonah's in despair. His disobedience has led him into the, bow, into the bottom of the boat and he is in despair, not wanting to face the consequences of his running away. And the merchants on top of the ship, we know they're pagans because it talks about how they were crying out to all their different gods. And this is in a time period when Israel had just moved out of a bunch of paganism. So Jonah clearly has this like separation. I'm going to be down here in the boat, bottom of the boat. You pagans can stay up there in the top. We're going to be separated. We're all good. Even to the point when they're like, hey, what God do you serve? He's like, I serve the God. I serve the God that made the sea and the land. And then they're like, what did you do? What did you do? 
Here's the funniest thing to me about this part. We know that it's talking about familiarity versus intimacy because when Jonah says, oh, just throw me into the ocean, I guess. He's become suicidal. He's just like given up. He's like, just throw me into the ocean. The pagans instead try to row harder to get to shore. It's in this moment we start to see in the book that the author is suggesting that in this moment, these pagans are acting more like followers of God than the prophet himself. At the end of the chapter, there is a boat full of people worshiping God because once they throw Jonah into the water, it ceases. And you have the prophet of God in the belly of a fish. Of those two groups of people, which one do you think was just familiar with God and which one was becoming intimate with him? Chapter 2. From in, I'm going to get a drink of water. Think about that for a second. <laughs> Chapter 2. From the, in, from, from the inside, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All of your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, you brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Ha ha ha, not like in last chapter. Um, But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What have I vowed? What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is similar, this is not a prophecy, this is similar to a psalm of David. It's a psalm of lament, a psalm of hardship. It's a psalm of recognizing where you are in and asking God to help you out of it. This is the first time we actually hear Jonah address God in the book of Jonah. God speaks to Jonah in the very beginning, clearly. Jonah doesn't even say anything when he decides to run to Tarshish. This is the first time we hear Jonah speak. It's taken him getting swallowed by a fish for him to respond to God's initial call. The lament is ended with a promise. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes to the Lord. That is going to be important. And I also just want to point out real fast the imagery of a fish vomiting Jonah onto the land is pretty awesome. I actually don't know if fish can vomit, but it's great that it's in here. So I love it. Let's move on to chapter 3. We can do this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. 
Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, a lot of times commenters say that um, this is when Jonah begins to obey the Lord. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. Because we've all been asked to do chores. And we all know that there are three ways to do a chore. There's the first way, which, well, the, the first response to being asked to do a chore, which is, you know, you don't do it. There's a second response to doing a chore, which is you do it. And then there's the third way. The smart, subversive way. That if you have a kid, plug their ears when I say this way. That is the, we've all done it, do the chore really, really bad and you won't be asked to do the chore again way. When you've been asked to clean the dishes and you just stick them already full, like just still covered in like old lasagna in the washing machine, in the dishwasher, and then when your parents pull them out, they're like, why is it still? You're like, I don't know, I tried to do the dishes. I guess I'm not good at it. I guess you don't have to ask me to do it again. This is what Jonah is doing. Jonah is doing the subversive chore answering. How do I know? Because this is Jonah's prophecy. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's the prophecy. Now to you and I, we're like, okay, cool. That's the prophecy. The Bible says the prophecy. Cool. But entire books, the next, like a few books over, Nahum, the entire book is a prophecy to Nineveh, where God is asking Nahum to speak out against Ninevites. And this is four chapters, three chapters, some chapters of just Nahum calling out to Nineveh. He talks about how the seas will boil and how the mountains will tremble, the skies will turn red. There's even a part where he says that God is going to lift up your skirts and fling dung on you so that the rest of the nations know how bad you are. That's a prophecy, people. <laughs> if there ain't dung being flown, it's not a prophecy. Instead, we get, yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Lame. Not buying it. The other thing is the author goes into explicit detail to tell us how big of a city Nineveh is. You remember how many days it would take to go through Nineveh? Three days. You remember what day Jonah said his wonderful prophecy? The first day. So we have Jonah basically walking up to this, like, here's this city limit sign. You know that big Orlando right there by uh, the Holy Land and everything? This is basically Jonah going, 40 days, you're going to die. <laughs> Done. I did it, God. He offers no specifics, no hope, just judgment. Do you remember what he promised in the belly of the fish? I will say salvation comes from the Lord. There is no mention of salvation in his message. I also want to point this out. How many times are you and I poetic towards our own needs and our own suffering, but we are pragmatic, pragmatic about the sufferings and needs of those around us? When it comes to our lives and the things that we need and the things that we want to hear from the Lord, we can get poetic. We can write songs and we can write poems. But then when it comes to the person across the street or the person in the other city, well, 40 days and you're going to be overturned. 
we understand, we give ourselves all this grace. We give ourselves this internal narratives. It's like, oh, well, I, that happened because of this and this and this and this and this. Someone else, oh, well, you know, they're sinners. So, 40 days. So what happens with Jonah's lame prophecy? And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mighty, mighty to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. After Jonah's pathetic prophecy, massive revival sweeps the city. Revival unlike any other documented in the scriptures. We have sheep not being allowed to eat have you ever tried to get a sheep to not fast? I don't even have a sheep. I can't get my dog to fast. Or what about the idea of like, let's put sackcloth on a cow. Can you imagine like a herd of cows walking by and just they're like covered in like potato sacks? And like those poor shepherds like, nope, don't eat the grass, don't eat the grass. You know when you go horseback riding and they're like, first rule, don't let the horse eat the grass when you're going horseback riding. What's the first thing the horse wants to do? Eat all the grass ever on the path. This is a literary tool that's being used here. This is showing us the idea that even just the smallest amounts of obedience can be turned into exponential amounts of glory. We even see in chapter 1 that God is even able to turn disobedience into small amounts of glory when the, when the pagan on the boat is now all of a sudden worshiping God. Well, now when he takes just a little bit of obedience, he saves the whole city. What happens next? When Goss, when Goss, Goss, when Goss saw, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Didn't say anything, but that's fine. That's what I was trying to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? There's a difference between being correct and being right. Ryan touched on this a couple weeks ago when he talked about our new understanding of justice. That justice is not just reciprocity, but it's deeper than that. We can be correct. We can know the law and all its things. But is it right Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant 
and made it grow over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Cool. Cool story. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun bathed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I am so angry I wish I were dead. Melodramatic. But the Lord said, I do not want to follow this guy's Instagram, by the way. Just full of like headache posts. Um, But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also the animals. I like that Jonah ends on a rhetorical question of God caring for not only people, but the earth as well. The second theme, hearing is not the same as understanding. This is the warning of Jonah. The warning of the story of Jonah, oh, that's it by the way, that's, that's Jonah. You just did it. How many of you, that's your first book of the Bible you've read? You don't have to raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Ryan's not here. Raise your hand. It's okay. That's the warning of Jonah, that we can hear the voice of God, but if we're not careful to understand the heart of God, that we remove ourselves from the revival that God is doing. This is similar to a story that Jesus tells later on in the parable of the prodigal son where the older son refuses to join the party of the prodigal son that has returned. Even more so, this becomes an important moment in Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 12. Now this is 800 years later. The story of Jonah, I'm sure, is well known amongst all the Pharisees. Jesus has just healed many in this crowd. He's cast out a demon. He's doing all these cool things. In verse 38, we see, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus uses this strange tale of Jonah to not only proclaim his death and resurrection, but to also remind both them and us that he is doing something that is bigger than we can possibly imagine. See, the Pharisees were familiar not only with the story of Jonah, but also with the law. And they understood the history books. And they understood the prophets. And they understood that they were waiting for a Messiah to come. To free them from the things that bonded them. And at that point in time, they were being pretty bonded by the Roman Empire. So it makes sense for them to look for a Messiah that was militaristic, that would take over. But Jesus comes and says, you want a sign? My sign is that I will die but I'll come back 
and I'm telling a story that is different than the one that you thought. Familiarity with the law is not the same as understanding the heart of the one that wrote it. They could hear the words coming out of this rabbi from Nazareth. But they never understood what he was up to. He had an agenda that was salvation not just for Israel but for all of mankind. Paul in Galatians talks about how it's neither Jew nor Gentile, free nor slave, male nor female, but all finding unity in Christ. There's a final word that I want to talk about, Jonah. And that there's some of you in here who might be upset because I referred to Jonah as like a parable. Or as like a story. Or as like a cautionary tale. And that upsets you. Um... Because you think that I discount the historicity of the tale. But the historicity does not hold any weight when judging the truths within it. And just because something is not real doesn't mean it's not true. And you can miss, if you focus only on those ways, you can miss the beauty of a world filled with art that tells us deeper truths. But there are also those of you in here that were relieved when I talked about Jonah being a tale or being this cautionary parable because you're like, whew, I'm down with the New Testament. I like Jesus. I like loving people. I'm good with that. But when you start talking about fish eating people or boats with a bunch of giraffes in it, I'm out can't possibly be true. But you too can miss something because you can miss a world that's beautiful because it's filled with miracles. And I believe that we serve a God that's not only speaking to us, but who's ready to do things like we can't even possibly imagine. And the problem is, is when we focus our conversation only on what God can and cannot do in those first few chapters... We totally miss the larger and more important conversation of who God is trying to save in chapter 3. Father, continue to speak. As we learn to hear your voice, may we learn the heart behind it as well. And respond in the same grace and mercy that you have shown us. The tables up front have been set. And whether you feel like you are a child of Nineveh and maybe you're astray in a place of hardship and need to come back to the Lord, or whether you feel like maybe you're Jonah, you've become too familiar with the divine and you need to have some more of that fear, awe, respect and really seek after the heart of the Father, I invite you to partake in Holy Communion. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.